welcome everyone to the Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek. We're the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. Matthew. My name is Matthew. And joining me is a guy so cultured that he always orders the Varaniki at the Russian Tea Room. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Yes, so forgive me, Matt. I don't do this much. Daredevil episode 104, titled In the Blood, is brought to us by Russian Ribs. When you're stuck in a Siberian cell, snap off a rack. Rats love them. Slow-cooked Siberian style. Mm-mm. Good eats. Order in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Our tease segment, Matt, places us in Utkin Prison, Siberia, eight years ago. Uh, guards are walking the towers there, and we see them then dragging a man through a hallway covered with tattoos and throw him in a cell. Um, I've confessed before that I watch uh, TV with the subtitles, not because I am deaf. Uh, I just like to read and watch TV at the same time. <laughs> and uh, if if you're doing that, instantly we give the name of Vladimir. Okay. And uh, he's already in the cell. He asks where Oleg is. And the new man just thrown in there explains it's just us now. But they don't need anybody else. The new man is identified by the subtitles as Anatoly. And I will point out this. We're not spoiling by giving those names with the subtitles. Uh, they're very careful throughout the course of this series and other shows when they do that. This is not like subtitles as you're watching a ball game where half the time they don't even get the guy's name correct. Um, so the new man is Anatoly, and uh, they say it's only... Uh, each other now that they have. They both have Compass Rose-looking tattoos all over them, and soon it'll just be you, Vladimir. No, my brother, we'll leave here together. He produces what looks like a knife, but it's not clear where he got it, uh, and they intend to leave tonight. Where did he get that? Oh, it was a gift, and he points to the body of Alexei. The guard's shouldn't have left him for the rats. He turns him over. His left ribs are busted open and a couple of them are missing. That's where the knives come from. He asks if they'll see Moscow again and he explains that city is buried in the past. They have to look to the future, to America, okay, where they will rule as kings. And then he snaps another rib bone. They want to go to America. And by the way, Pete, the setting here, the Siberian prison, filled with the moans of the damned, bloody, bruised, half-dead people, it's basically what you'd expect from a Siberian prison. It is. We flash to Hell's Kitchen now, where one of our Russian thugs is on the phone. He wants to know, he's here, how did he find us? Where's my brother? Get him on the phone. He jumps into a taxi. Suddenly a body lands on it. Uh, the driver skids away in reverse. 
camera pans up, we see our masked man has thrown that body and he is panting heavily from the window. I like how there's a little lack of uh, lack of complete clarity in this in this continuation in Hell's Kitchen here. Um, yes, we've seen these Russian characters before. I, I don't know that they were ultra memorable just in terms of the two brothers and keeping them straight uh, thus far in, in, in the previous episodes. And I'll confess, I initially thought um, when Vladimir gets in the ta- taxi, asks where his brother is, I thought that it was his brother being dropped onto the cab. Mm-hmm. Um, th- and the fact that it, it is not, I think, you know, it's just the show kind of, not exactly misdirecting, but just it's one of these like, you know, despite the serial story, the ongoing nature of, of the storyline here, the show is not afraid to have us be a bit confused at times. And and that takes faith in the audience. And I like it. Right. And later on, you know, Anatolia is described as being the way in and, and, you know, this it was a little confusing that to to keep them. I'm still struggling a little bit to keep them uh separate act one in a show on netflix that does not break for commercials begins with claire stitching our masked man up uh presumably after this latest encounter she remarks how he's been busy she's working on his left shoulder you should see the other guys he explains okay um She says, I have. I've been on the roof of my place. That guy is in a coma, she knows, because of the hospital. Um, She wants to know how uh, Matt, or Mike at this point, uh, feels about it. And he says he'll live. At this point, Claire hisses, uh, effectively breaking the tension here at the cat that she is cat-sitting for. This just jumped on the counter. And she does not like cats. She is allergic. She's supposed to be feeding him twice a day, not hiding out there, using up all her sick days. But just a little longer, Mike tells her till he knows the Russians are not looking for her. What uh, what I really enjoy in this scene is that, or at least this portion of the scene, is th- that little detail there that uh, the man thrown from the roof is in a coma. I like the idea that there is uh, there's a world of consequences that they live in, yep. and not just for the major characters, not just you know because oh he's cut again. I like that you know what it was so kind of cavalier. Uh, how how Daredevil flipped him off the roof, and then there was kind of the story get of oh well he landed in the dumpster, so you know there's kind of the opportunity to say broken bones, but he'll be okay. But instead, you know it's 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 serious. I mean, to, to be in a coma is no is no laughing matter. And you know, I mean, I'm sure clearly he's a bad guy. I'm sure he deserved it, but still, there's kind of this human toll uh, being carried. Right, and Claire talks about the meat grinder and the need for um, our our masked man here to get some body armor. He's concerned, of course, it will just slow him down. So will a bullet, she says. Um, And by the way, Pete, on the topic of body armor, I'm sure that uh, all our listeners, I'm sure that you have noticed as well, Mm -hmm. um, that the the artwork on Netflix for this series uh, changed over the weekend. I think by Monday it was it was just plain up front the uh sunday sunday was it okay so i mean i just 
for me as incredibly anti-spoiler, hey, I still saw the most recent uh, bit of promotional stuff they did the day before the series dropped. I, I've seen that before. It's not you know a major surprise. I just found it interesting that this is kind of the hyper binge watch thing that you know yeah. you get the reveal of no suit. Um, you know, if you had somehow missed the ad, uh, you get no suit in the show. You know, for two days, and then now it's just part of the artwork. And now this this tongue in cheek line is a bit more um, bit more obvious uh, if you've you know clicked on it for the first time. Like, look, he wears a thing. Oh, he's not there yet. It is, and you know, having seen the first five episodes prior to them dropping for everybody um you know knowing that the suit wasn't in the first five episodes and there was some trepidation oh my god are we gonna have it again i i think i have to come back to was there some kind of panic move or are they just going all in like all right the show's out there let's let's show them that all right what what the press didn't screen the the suits in there boom here here's daredevil um Netflix does not release numbers. We're never going to hear how they're doing. Um, spoiler, they're killing it. Certainly, if if the traffic that was on Twitter the, the weekend it premiered is any indication, that was nothing. That was nothing on the same level as House of Cards. It was 10 times the amount compared to when, when the first season of House of Cards dropped. It was incredible. It literally was... 30 straight hours of my Twitter feed constantly, you know, not tweet after tweet, of course, but just there, you were never more than a quick, a quick click of the mouse away to see somebody talking about this show. Again, Netflix, secretive in numbers, Marvel loves its secrets. I'm sure that they're just sitting there cackling at, at all the numbers, but Here's one number, even if it's pulling Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. numbers, which you might say is kind of low, four and a half million. Four and a half million would be over 10% of all the Netflix subscribers. From a Netflix point of view, that works because that's a whole bunch of people who aren't going to cancel anytime soon. So it's a hit. It is. And we should point out to um, Game of Thrones season five debuted over the weekend. And uh, there was a leak over the weekend. The leak came reportedly from a an official source uh, that was watermarked. So there's some concern now that one of the channels that it was uh, given to by HBO uh, leaked it. And there's even a conspiracy theory that the credit sequence was changed in different copies sent out so they could try to pinpoint where their leaks were game of thrones in 2014 was the most illegally downloaded torrented show over 48 million episode episodes were stolen and um here's the thing about netflix it doesn't get stolen it doesn't get pirated people pay for this and there's a reason why you know, I I do feel Game of Thrones is the best thing on TV right now, but this is pretty damn good, and the traffic alone dictates that. I mean, depending on how much you as a content provider are concerned about piracy, uh, it is a heck of a way to avoid piracy problems by just dumping everything that you have uh, on on your you know on your channel on your website whatever whatever you want to call it. Um, for just consumption as soon as possible. Um, 
it's it's fascinating to me that here we are in 2015 and the exact future of tv that somehow is internet question mark it still is not quite clear uh it's 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 incredibly exciting you know what though matt when we talk about worry of numbers and everything like this mike is worried that claire is worried about him and we get this nice nice, yeah (laughs) We get this nice back and forth and, you know, we, we've gone from serious to lighthearted banter a couple times now in this early relationship between our masked man and, and Claire. And this nicely mirrors another budding relationship buried within this episode. It, it really is a moment of tenderness and so honestly done that I don't think there's a person uh, watching who would say, oh, they're setting up a romance. It's just care from two people who are keeping each other at arm's length, but keeping each other as close as arm's length, uh, where the rest of the world, they keep much farther away. And it, it was just it was just incredibly sweet and heartfelt and and really, really a nice touch. And she wants to know uh, what happens when... Uh he comes over and she's talking to someone else. It's then that he produces a phone. You shouldn't have, she jokes, but the burner is, uh, for her to let him know when it's not okay to be around or when she's in trouble. Uh, that's uh, your classic example there of Chekhov's burner phone. Yes. Um, so he has her, uh, memorize the number and put hers in. But Claire is increasingly concerned that uh, Mike's activity is going to get him killed, that he's going to stumble in and bleed to death. Um, and this is continuing to spiral out of control. He assures her that he can take care of himself, but it's not about you. It's uh, a little more complicated Uh, And she hears from him for the first time the name, Matt. We weren't allowed to speak (laughs) until the end of the third episode. Indeed, he asks her about Wilson Fisk, and she says she hasn't heard of him, which, okay, fair enough. And then there's reference made to just something that in this modern day and age is mind-boggling. There is no public nor internet record of him. Just a notion that is astonishing. I'm not saying unreasonable, mind you, given the the mysterious and clouded nature of, of the Fisk, you know, Fisk Enterprises and the, the Fisk world here. But it, it's 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 a stunning notion that forget freedom of information act that you can't google the the guy and get something um and and that speaks to just kind of untold untold volumes of concern and that sort of thing right and you know she asks him uh if it was a lie how would you know he explains because of the heartbeat oh yes and it's been a cute nice slow the the show takes its time with the reveals and you know not I can hear his heartbeat and I know he's lying, you know, that doesn't come across that way. And, and therein the realism to things we know to not be real. 
And I think, too, given the nature of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where the most spectacularly, spectacularly powered people are um, kind of augmented, if you will, you know, the Iron Man suit, the super soldier serum, uh, gamma radiation, and, you know, godlike alien, um, that's kind of their their benchmark for fantastic people and it's not going to be the shorthand of oh i'm one of those pete can we say it mutants you know because mutants don't exist and and the nature of inhumans is still being explored slowly on agents of shield so there kind of is no shorthand to say yes i have powers there there would need to be that explanation of yeah it's just kind of this thing where i hear really 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 well it's not you know i got superpowers so it's it's nice that despite the fact that this is a show more cloistered from the the movies than the other series have been um it still kind of fits in there because this is just this is just a neighborhood guy with kind of a minor power compared right. to everyone else. And, you know, as he's going to leave here out the fire escape, uh, his hope of finding uh, Wilson Fisk, he explains, is about applying enough pressure someone will break. And again, some heavy foreshadowing there. Um, also some reference to the breaking we've seen done before, both in this episode and throughout the series. We're then in a taxi garage, uh, kitchen cab label on a uh, taxi is being replaced by Vela's taxi with a stencil and glasses walks in. We will stop calling him that in this podcast episode once we get his name. And uh, he starts to talk to our Russian. He says, oof, you look hurt. Uh, the Russian explains he's had worse. And uh, Glasses explains that uh, I know your people extol pain, but maybe try ducking next time. <laughs> uh, what is just as just as elegant is uh, the next the, the next bit of information revealed that now that they've taken over Prohaska's business and it's all kind of being merged, um, it'll double the Russians' distribution network. And it's just kind of this moment of wow, taxis to distribute drugs, taxis as the the, the cover to get around to different places and whatnot. Uh, I, I know nothing of, of that world, uh, certainly, as I'm sure you do not, Pete. But I, it was just kind of like, oh, well, at least on the page, that really, really works well as a, as a way to distribute drugs around the city. Right. And while they express their gratefulness to uh, Glass's employer here, um, he tells them they don't think that he cares very much, that the Russians have uh, come in light again this week. They talk about the complication, and we know what's going on here. They're referring to the fool that laid hands on his brother. Um, He said, ask your employer, and uh, the name came up here. He's asking for Fisk by name. And not just once, twice. The first time it's kind of... uh... As he's saying it, Glasses is uh, speaking over him, and then it's just said clearly, um, leading to just a a subtle but such a wonderful acting moment 
uh, from Toby Leonard Moore here. It's just kind of a slight twitch in one eye because mm-hmm. it's not just, oh, don't say it, and it's, ooh, it's a faux pas, I almost did. It's the fact that this guy is overriding the 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 rules that they have, and it's just kind of this wow that's a major sign of trouble to come if if that's going to be your attitude if you can't follow the, this little rule while there are big rules ahead that maybe you're going to have a problem with foreshadowing foreshadowing um and it's all it's all kind of demonstrated there and just one little eye as he's saying i can't believe he said that right and uh glasses talks about the idea of you know, you guys need to settle this. You sneeze. We all catch a cold. Madam Gao, Mr. Nobu, first time our Japanese uh, gentleman from the first episode has been given a name. Have I expressed- think, Pete, to, to, to correct you partially, there was a reference made to Nobu when we first met the character. I read it as a reference to the Asian restaurant and, you know, kind of yes. that kind of thing. So, I, I mean, to me, it yeah. was both... The, the reveal of his name and then the, oh, man, I bet the other time was actually a reveal. He's, he is Mr. Nobu now. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but both have expressed disappointment. The Russians have not heard of this because, uh, as Glasses explains, it's gone on behind their backs. And that people are seeing them increasingly as a problem. Um, you know, it's here we get a, a nice overt. Uh, connection to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, this this is because they can't handle one man in a mask. If if he had an iron suit or a magic hammer, it would be uh, explicable. But uh, yeah, it's just not working out, and that this operation has been weakened to the point where um, they have to say that it's not personal, Vladimir. Um, it quickly though is bubbling up. Uh, the 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 Russian brothers here saying that if Fisk wants his pound of flesh to come get it himself. Uh, both <laughs> clear foreshadowing, um, but also uh, just an opportunity here to kind of call attention to the fact that you know Fisk clearly is not a is not a a, a public face for a lot of this stuff. Um, and on the heels of having uh, Fisk's name mentioned twice. Uh, in Russian, no less, we finally get a name for glasses, as had been suspected. It's Wesley. It is Wesley. Um, he talks about how the distribution of Madame Gao's product has uh, been delayed by other ventures. And um, Vladimir, who is our Russian who bears the scar on the right eye, there's another right eye. I tell you, Pete, if we get a character that gets both eyes gouged out, I hope we don't meet mom anytime soon. (laughs) No. Um, But uh, he tells him, the Russian here, that if Mr. Fisk wants a pound of flesh, he can come down here and carve it himself. Pete, it's only in retrospect that this is such a, a, a foreshadowing heavy scene. And I appreciate that because there's many, many other shows where it's just kind of like, you know, one day we'll have our showdown. And it doesn't quite play here, in part because we've seen so little of Fisk. Um, but it's it's nice looking back at this episode as a whole to really see how things are structured in terms of, you know, this guy's calling for the devil, the other devil, and the devil's going to get him. 
Right. And the devil that has barely been named to this point, um, Vladimir brings up that why doesn't Fisk want his name mentioned? Because it betrays he's just a man. Sometimes the, the, the myth can be bigger than the man, and sometimes you want to keep it that way. Well, it is the devil you know, Matt. Speaking of the devil. Hashtag spoiler Pete. <laughs> Uh, the mask man and what he's done. The Russian brothers talk about this and they know nothing about him. But Semyor, uh, who sleeps like the dead, a reference to the man in the coma that Claire referenced before, well, he needs to wake up and they remind us that Jesus rose on the third day. A reference, yes, but a covert reference. It certainly was not clear to me that this was this was the same Russian. Um, yes, coma and sleeping, um, but I had not kind of put it all together. And and once again, I like that. I think that they're okay in the show saying this is a show for grown-ups, and you'll figure out soon enough who this guy is. We don't need to say, oh, since Semyor, since he fell, fell down into the dumpster it, just <laughs> let the story breathe are these characters really going to do that amount of exposition with each other no of course not they're going to be a little flip they're going to be a little you know a little kind of highfalutin about it to 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 try and you know get rid of the the bad juju around it so again the show trusting its audience to a diner we go where karen page and ben Urich are meeting she has something for him to see, and uh, he thinks that this is a story he's heard before and not really interested in. But she talks about how Daniel Fisher has been killed. They tried to kill her. Um, Rance was sent to uh, take her out, um, and a masked man in black saved her. He's heard of Stranger Things doesn't quite believe this and the idea that uh rance hung himself in jail uh that the cop tried to do the same to her he reveals that farnham oh he's dead and your old boss mcclintock he od'd on pills pattern pattern indeed and he he clearly has more interest than he's showing to her however uh you know, I think here we're seeing the scars uh, from the previous episode in terms of Ben's dealing with his editors. Boy, oh boy, the story of a company that messed up, you know, and restructured and did legal mumbo jumbo to switch things around. Not that big a deal for a reporter to necessarily look at. Uh, same thing. Oh, there's a man, man all dressed in black who, you know, did karate chops. You know what? There's no secret serum. There's no like floating aircraft carrier thing. There's no like alien half robot guys flying around the city. Guy in a black suit, not really a big deal. And I love how it's all kind of being underplayed on the one end. Ah, corporate malfeasance again. A minor bump in the road. Ah, some nut, you know, karate chopping bad guys. Ah, not not sexy. Not newspaper material. And given this pattern, he points out to her, don't you understand your luck that you need to count the angels on ahead of a pin and move on? 
But when it comes to this case, she falls back on the physical. You can move numbers around, but construction companies and things with cranes and stuff like this, you can't hide those numbers that if it's liquidated, there would be a trail. He instead thanks her for the coffee and explains that stories are built on credible sources. And I have a little bit of experience with that, that he's done some digging and uh, seen her past activities, which, of course, we don't get in detail, at least for now. Which I really, really liked. It was like, oh, but I thought that she was completely upstanding and wanting to do the right thing. And she was really charming on True Blood. So she has some secret past. Um, just a wonderful, again, I, I know I keep repeating myself, but this is a show built on little details, little bricks that build a big, big wall. And here it's like, oh, I didn't know that we would have the time in 13 episodes to go after kind of her history, more about her. Oh, but wait a minute, we do, and that makes the show all the better and all the stronger. And uh, speaking of of homework and pasts, uh, she's done homework on him, the hero reporter with all these kind of rah-rah stories behind him. The VA kickbacks, the toxic runoff story, the teacher's union scandal pretty much brought down the Italian mob when she was in diapers. And all these get referenced again so wonderfully later in the episode. But she wants to know what happened to that reporter. And he, of course, explains he got old and a hell of a lot less stupid. And we cut to a hospital, Matt, and you almost think for a second this is going to be more of Ben's story. But they're wisely saving it for later. Uh, indeed. Um, in that transition, by the way, it's a pan shot from left to right as he leaves, and that dissolves into a pan shot from left to right in what we learn is the comatose uh, Russian's hospital room. Um, so, also, uh, spoiler alert, there is a bedpan under that Russian. And why is that a spoiler? Uh, yeah, that's just a spoiler. Oh, Okay. <laughs> You may not have seen it. I know there's a bedpan under him. There, there you go. Uh, so, Just like there was when I binge-watched all 13 of these episodes. Fair enough. Um, of course, Pete, the comatose Russian, uh, kind of reminds me of a narcoleptic Argentinian, but that's another movie. Um, he's not alone for long. Uh, Vladimir and his brother come in, and they have the kit. They do. <clears throat> and clearly epinephrine that they use here to get him started um though he's got the ventilator and he's intubated uh that doesn't exactly stop him when he jolts out there but there's some discussion about what's going to go on and that they've kind of lost their way the two brothers there uh worried about mr fisk's cautious uh nature um that they were in a hellhole for three years one time princes of moscow to the s word our (laughs) sixth if you're keeping score at home in the series wow i didn't i didn't know we were keeping track now i have to have a little shit sheet that's C-H-I-T. Um, I love how casual they are before giving the epinephrine uh, injection. You know, just kind of 
casually taking off that external portion of the breathing tube quick you know plunking off the little ekg finger monitor even the pillow holding up his shattered arm with one of those you know round thingies meant to hold everything in place it's just quick plop the pillow off and the arm is you know is going back and forth there um the real loyal guys these uh brothers of moscova yes and when Semyon comes to matt who has he seen it was the diablo that came for him yes um, he also makes reference to a woman and then he whispers and they go to get Sergey. Suddenly they're on the phone. Guys are in Claire's apartment. There are empty hangers. But what's this? It's poor Santino in the doorway. Hola. <laughs> and you feel for him at that moment because even uh, even not, you know, not finding out his fate for a little while. Uh, in the you know till later in the episode, it's still like oh this poor kid who's just wrong place wrong time how many times, and uh, with that though we <laughs> from that kind of light moment we cut to something far more far more weighty uh, we cut to Wesley and Fisk feels nice to just say that so plainly yes uh, they're in the car although it's dangerous <laughs> that's true you might not hear us again if this is the last podcast you know why <laughs> um they're talking about how anatoly is more open to change than his brother um not as vitriolic indeed he is and just this this notion here of the the string pulling going on by fisk yes because he explains uh, confrontation is expensive. He prefers to be quiet. So really coming across as as the prudent, wise, and, you know, consult with Wesley here, of course, you know, crime lord that he is, wants to know about a timeline. Uh, Wesley tells him it's reasonable, assuming we can settle with the Russians. Fisk wants it done quick. Um, and this will happen one way or the other. And Wesley asks him, well, what about the masked man? And Fisk says, if the brothers can't handle it, we'll find another solution. The car stops. Fisk grabs Wesley by one of his other symbols, the watch there that we came to know him in the courtroom episode, um, 103, uh, Rabbit in a Snowstorm. And uh, <clears throat> the callback there, of course, with the art scene at the end of that episode and our introduction to Wilson Fisk. And he explains that, uh, you know, uh, Wesley needs to uh, stay in the car. Um, he needs to attend to this alone at 642 um, galleries goes in. There are names on the wall. Um, perhaps of some significance if you go back and look. Uh, the same woman, the art dealer who he was speaking with before, who told him the joke about the rabbit in the snowstorm is there. She says, hello there. Did you enjoy the rabbit in the snowstorm? Uh, it's one of her favorite pieces. And he's he's going right for the throat, Matt. He hung it in his bedroom. It's the last thing he sees when he goes to bed at night and uh she says this is either very romantic or very sad 
he of course tells himself the former. Well, Pete, these two scenes here, the car ride and then arriving at the art gallery, that's where it was just this realization of of what Vincent D'Onofrio is really doing with this character. Um, this is the scene where, these two scenes where it, it's just this incredible uh, range of emotion here. In the car, there's just real, true pathos on his face. He seems so sad and empty and alone, almost subsumed by the evil of this operation. And I wonder if trying to look for the, the, the slightest glimmer uh, out of that, not not out of the operation, but emotionally out of the mire. Um, and then when he sees her again in the art gallery, he's almost knocked over by her emotionally again. And when he starts to ask her out to dinner, he's almost shamed by it. And right. and her her quick mentioning of uh, you know being the only one working that night, he's ready to leave shamefacedly, like you know, like a like a teenager. And then she almost has to talk. Or she does talk him back in, but it's almost coaxing him back in. And there is such a damaged sense to him. It's profound acting and profound presentation and profound tenderness here that that uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is imbuing into a character who I did not know had this third dimension to him. I, I, I knowing the character from the comics uh, and from the uh, from the movie, this is not the character I, I, I had known previously. The showrunners were out in front that, you know, there would be a love story for our villain here, but I don't think any of us were prepared for it to be presented in a way that would make you care and to make you interested like this. Ordinarily, it's it's two dimensional. You know, I, I think of The Departed and Jack Nicholson and the and the wife and, you know, you get that, but you, you, you don't care and you're removed and everything here. You know, the idea that she says to him, you know what, you, that's it. You're not going to offer to buy every painting here so I can close early. One guy offered to try that once and and he just comes back at her, you know, sh- showing who he will later show her to be. Um, you know, that a woman can be bought isn't worth having. Just, just an incredible scene and one that risks... In the, in the best sense, stopping the entire series and everything else around it because it's it just feels so so authentic and so powerful. We get a name. She is Vanessa, and he introduces himself as Wilson. Cut to cat food and Claire blowing her nose because of her allergies to the cat. She can't get to this little bastard to eat the food fast enough. She's rattling pills. She hears noise. She gets her phone out to contact um, Mike, looks through the peephole. There's a rather strange-looking lady in the hallway, but otherwise nothing to fear. Great reverse shot, Matt, to a shadow on the curtain, obviously portending danger. I love that they go the slightly less obvious route, Um you know, I mean, the minute that there is that there is that uh, ruckus outside the apartment, um, I think we could reasonably assume, you know, trouble is headed her way. The Russians have have gotten a lead on where she might uh, have gone from from her old apartment to this uh, this borrowed one. 
And the fact that there's misdirect and then she's relieved, but we see it and we're able to yell at the screen, no, look out. And, um, and she doesn't see it really sets up the tension uh, in this scene nicely. And of course, you know, <laughs> certainly propels things uh, further in the episode. We join Foggy and uh, Matt leaving work. And it's the first time that Foggy floats that uh, he might have had another career path. You know, his mom wanted him to be a butcher. Not the butcher story, Matt laments. Um, goes through here how they had just uh, bailed out a piss-drunk electrician who nearly burned down his house. But as he always does, Matt has the sympathetic angle. Hey, Ed's wife left him. It was an accident, admittedly, of course, involving cigarettes and gasoline. Um, but Foggy goes on about how he could have been carving his own roast beef, uh, that they'd have a nicer office with plants and fax machines and all these other things. And he wants to know what if they've got it all wrong what with the internship they had had at uh, Lehman and Zuck not uh, continuing there, instead going off on their own and missing the free bagels and an elevator and all the other stuff. And then Mike or Mike's uh, unbeknownst to Foggy going by Mike, Matt's phone rings. What do you got a different phone? This is for all those girls. How do we afford that? And it's Claire being dragged away from the phone. The purpose of this of this dialogue here, uh, beyond the fact that it's just setting up uh, Matt retelling this uh, tale of his alternate life later on in the episode, um, but I think the purpose is that it is ultimately mostly purposeless. It's a slow and easy conversation. It's kind of meandering and... The two of them are just enjoying it because it's two pals out, you know, uh, wondering about their place in the universe, so on and so forth. Meanwhile, we, the audience, bring all the attention to the scene. The show doesn't need to supply any because we know something uh, reasonably is going to be happening to Claire. And as soon as that alternate phone, that burner phone that Matt has, rings, it's getting worse and worse for us while the two of them are just kind of, you know, hanging out and shooting the breeze. Um, down to this deliciously tense moment where you know Matt picks up the phone. Hey, hang on one second, and you know puts it down. Uh, no, no super hearing there because he's focused on Foggy and not the fact that you know Claire is being attacked. And as you mentioned, Pete, just this wonderful shot. She's grabbing for the phone and uh, just a, a really inspired decision here to keep the focus. Uh, at the point where she was so she gets pulled out of that focus point out of that focal point away from the phone into what we do not know and just a really really compelling scene and what does he do he takes off at a dead run into the alley up the fire escape to her place as if he is a, a fully sighted individual to find claire gone and the phone still there goes out to the window listens and hears some Russian and catches one word there, Santino. And once again, uh, you know, the show returning to, a, to a, a well-worn bit of skill here, this sound design where we hear the filtering uh, out of all the 
the urban jungle of the cityscape the 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 sounds that are you know that 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 would be blocking him as buildings would block our sight you know he's able to filter through it and pick up that rush in there and then uh, with that pete he's ready to give chase nonetheless claire is in the taxi trunk um the russians uh talk back and forth that they're heading there now and in the midst again of all this tension we head to an auction and uh karen is watching uh lot 87, the liquidation of uh, the Allied Construction LLC. There's 42 desktops, et cetera, et cetera, with an estimated valuation of $40,000. They're going to start the bidding at $7,000. And um, as she's doing this, Matt, very curiously, she's drawing. And it was interesting to uh, take a look at what she might have been drawing there certainly the impression i got was she was trying to scope out who some of the uh, potentially shadowy individuals are amidst the shadows of the auction um to just kind of get a sense of of who is there who who might be a person of interest um th- there are mysteries to karen that i think it's slowly becoming apparent um that that exist and that the show isn't completely filling us in yet so certainly uh something to keep an eye on there as she is she's trying to make her own way of justice in all of this but no sooner is ben right behind her and uh with a, a, a auction book and tells her uh don't stop what you're doing this is how you get caught um See the woman in the white blouse. No, eyes front. You know, see the man in the navy pinstripe. You know, they're not bidding. So raise your paddle. Win something small. Uh, Meet me in an hour um, at the diner down there. Um, And she wants to know, how did you know that I was here and Ben has disappeared? I dare say uh, (laughs) that's that's an ignorant question on her part. Uh, I think we, the audience, are meant to assume pretty darn fast he's not there for her. He's there because he's he's following up on this lead. He he wonders how far this thread can be tugged and what exactly is going on. Uh, by the way, Pete, fans of the uh, the Broadway might have been anticipating uh, perhaps a, a crystal chandelier <laughs> damaged up for auction. Lot is it six six four six six five six six six. Uh, it's six six five because six 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 is the one where the chandelier goes on. <laughs> so uh, perhaps a missed opportunity there, but yeah. uh, well, but we also st- perhaps not. Marvel the musical. We we still got a phantom at the end of the scene. <laughs> um, then we are in Vela's taxi. Uh, the trunk opens and Claire has duct tape across her mouth. Um, we flip back across town and uh, our masked man um, finds a bruised Santino. And again, the sympathetic tendencies of Matt Murdock emerge and in nearly fluent and flawless Spanish gets the information he needs to and puts this horribly frightened individual at ease. It's okay. It's me. Uh, do you remember me? Claire has been taken. Um, Santino says he didn't say anything at first, but they took me to the roof. They say they would come back for me. Madre. 
Do you know where they took her? He doesn't. And he feels it's his fault. And um, Mike takes the blame here. He says, no, it's mine. It's it, it certainly is a moment. These two scenes are, I suppose, then two moments uh, where the the tension and the speed of the episode really ramped up. They're, they're shorter scenes. And uh, just as both of these are pointing towards, hey, there's going to be a showdown. And, and we are starting to be concerned most of all with that. Uh, really nice pacing and editing of the episode because we then cut to Fisk's date. So as as charming as and as enveloping as that scene becomes, it's kind of playing off the tension of, you know, no, this is nice, but I want to get back to, you know, Claire duct taped and bloodied and what's going on with that. But instead, Pete, it's uh, it's Fisk and Vanessa on a date. Yes, the wine's being poured. It's delicious, of course. But Fisk admits to not knowing much about wine. His assistant, uh, not by name here, but we know that's Wesley, had recommended this. And Vanessa says, well, maybe I should be out with him. And talk about tension. She has to point out that this is a joke. And we know that Fisk doesn't do this much. He's been preoccupied for a long time and a long lingering shot there for the second time in this series as he fingers a cufflink with a rather unusual design. This podcast would be slightly shorter, uh, but much poorer if the little acting moments that Vincent D'Onofrio brings to Fisk were not noted, at least from time to time. And here, when he's when he has approved the wine himself, and and one certainly gets the impression at that moment that you know he understands wines because he had a little taste and said yes, good, you know. Uh, but then when it is time for Vanessa to drink it to taste it herself, Fisk has these little motions of the eye. His face is searching her face for approval as she drinks it because indeed as we know he does not know and he's concerned that she's gonna find something wrong with the wine nay with him and it's just yet another example of of just the wonderful little moments that that D'Onofrio brings to this character and it's scene after scene where he is stunning Um, The restaurant ambiance here, they are both enjoying and Fisk begins to take her through here. It's just opened. She remarks how the city is changing. He says, not fast enough. And we, of course, know uh, with the dramatic irony, uh, everything that he's up to. Um, And he figures from this she didn't grow up here. Uh, and Fisk explains how when he was a kid, he would dream that he was somewhere other than Hell's Kitchen. When he was 12, he was sent to a farm, and he says those were good years. It gave him clarity, and he came to realize, however, that the city was part of him, and he realized the irony here. He wanted to make it a better place for people like you, Vanessa, Um, and we go from that to Claire bloody and a baseball bat. And, and what great irony, what great differences in presentation here, the, the exposition that Fisk gives it, it's glorious, lovely exposition. I couldn't help but think this farm in the middle of nowhere, 
so evocative of you know him and, and at least his most formative years uh, being done in uh, in America's heartland, much much like another comic hero. Um, and just like that that comic hero from Kansas, Fisk has returned to the city because it called him, um, which sounds so great. And you say, oh, sometimes you have to break an egg to make an omelet. Sometimes you have to yank that Band-Aid off for it to get better. But then we see Claire, tired, beaten. The the notion of PG-15, which is something that... Uh, that uh, Stephen Denight referenced in uh, in various interviews uh, over the premiere weekend for the show. So this notion of PG fifteen, it's a little bit harder than PG thirteen. It's not kind of R or your TVMA. Uh, this, I think, walks the line in a really effective way. Just the amount of of um, I don't know grime on her face and sweat. There's there, there's just such a there's such a pathetic look to her, and it really is suggestive of violence that we have not seen. And as the show has continued to do, the violence already perpetrated on her is worse in our mind than having shown, you know, the actual act. And the cat and mouse through four episodes now, you know, we're going back and forth trying to get each other's names, Fisk and, and Murdoch and everything here. The Russians break the glass. They want to know the name. Uh, she says that uh, she was never told it. Uh, this is Sergei here with the bat. And he says that uh, he's not going to kill her until they've done the job. They're going to break her off a piece at a time. Uh, and then the lights go out. Is it the circuit breaker and the audio, Matt, the sound design, the smashing glass? And Claire laughing almost maniacally. Absolutely. When the lights go out, we know it's game time and we say, yes, justice. He'll, you know, a little, you know, wet face cloth to, to fix her, fix her cuts. It'll all be okay. But when she gives that worn, wonderful laugh, I mean, the closest thing I can compare it to uh, and with complete favorableness is the image of the Joker driving the police car and just relishing the chaos of it all, relishing the wrongness of it all. And that's what her laugh is. It's, it's almost scary, I think, to we the audience because she's just beyond her wit's end here, but she knows the end is in sight. And how is she going to be saved by just awful things happening to people, albeit bad people? Um, and then, you know, get ready to ask him uh, his name yourself. It's it's such a wonderfully dark moment and, and and so indicative of the series. We see a whip-like device used by the masked man for the first time. He uh, pulls something away. Uh, there's gunfire. Claire, who is also duct-taped at the ankles, uh, gets down uh, nearly underneath the car there is uh, punching, clanging, a tire iron hits somebody. Um, and then we're down to Sergey. Um, the masked man's trying to uh, get Claire, let her go. And Sergey says he's going to walk out or blow her brains out here. Our masked man tells Sergey to put down the gun or he promises him he'll never hold anything in that hand again. Okay. And of course, he makes good on it. Does it hurt? You know, there's the pain of 
pain and then there's the pain of being afraid. The bat drops and there's this tremendous reunion. Um, third consecutive scene here with um, Murdoch where he's the, the sympathetic figure, you know, telling her it's okay. I'm here. I have you. And uh, she just decompensates in his arms. This fight scene quotes so favorably in spirit, if not in shots, from the first ship, kind of fight shipping container scene uh, in Batman Begins. We don't see Daredevil. We just see what he does. We see men twisted and pulled into the darkness. And just like in Batman Begins, this scene of revenge treats our hero almost as a cinematic villain, uh, using the flavoring of horror film tropes by not showing the threat. Um, indeed, by decentralizing Daredevil's voice into being a shadow who knows what evil lurks in the hearts and me- hearts of men, um, and then just that inspired ending to the fight, uh, Daredevil breaking the the guy's hand, and uh, who is it that brings it to an end? Uh, you know, Claire with that aluminum bat to to the Russian's face, and uh, certainly a message if you haven't gotten it so far that she and the women in the show do not sit on the sidelines. And there we are with Karen in the diner and Ben comes along, um, wants to know if she had been on anything uh, to which she explains some office equipment from a realtor, uh, 3500 uh, that she doesn't have and she doesn't know if she has a job at the law firm she works at anymore. Um, but uh, how did you know? I would be there comes across and uh, I thought you weren't interested, but it's the guy behind the curtain here that they're uh, looking into. Remember the story about the runoff? Yeah. Well, they fished the guy who tipped him off uh, a month later out of the river. Um, There was the teacher that had to move upstate after there were flyers about uh, pedophilia. And then uh, Karen asks about that VA woman. Whatever happened to her? And Ben solemnly tells her that she met the worst fate. She married beneath her to a workaholic. Vondi Curtis Hall's Ben in this scene is is so uh restrained and professorial it's absolutely fantastic he's he's cool as a cucumber he's wise he's gristled and i almost feel bad for for the actor in that um it's not his fault that there are better performances going on in this series particularly vincent d'onofrio but that's not his business nor his concern he's playing this part just so so wonderfully and i think capturing something about the the aging man and the aging newspaper man in a in an aging uh industry um but he's hanging on to to really do the right thing but knows the underbelly of the city and knows that it can bite you um all this by the way pete happening in a real location the square diner and yep. uh, i propose next time we are in the the nyc we'll have to have to check it out see if uh see if we see ben and karen meeting there definitely but um you know the knowledge that he married the one woman from his uh his va hospital story and everything that went on with that you know, further deepens his character without having to give us all the answers. 
he has advice for Karen though. Don't visit my office. Uh, I need you to sign the union union allied <clears throat> uh, agreement. And she says, no, I can't because I won't be able to uh, talk in public. He says, but I can. And here we almost have, uh, <laughs> and not to hit the DC comic references to an extreme here, but it's a wonderful dynamic duo, which is now formed here. She wants justice. He wants not just kind of justice with a capital J, but also to follow this story that he knows is worth investigating and, and he knows is worth being put forth in a in a public newspaper. Um, and together they're going to try and make something happen here. And it really is, uh, it's, a, it's a nice partnership, an unlikely partnership, but uh, one that the show benefits from greatly. We go back to Sergey, and uh, they want to know who has done this, and it's the man in black. And uh, Piotr, <clears throat> our other, uh, one of our other Russian thugs' name comes up here and uh, lets them know that Fisk is out of hiding um, and that they're going to go and make the deal here. Um, and we cut back to the restaurant where it's dessert time for the Zopanglezi, Matt. Um, and Vanessa plays coy here, you know. Oh, I, th I thought they only had that at children's birthday parties. And Fisk, with his, uh, his lady here, um, or at least the object of his affection, they're not in a relationship proper just yet, uh, has such a self-effacing sense of humor, you know, says when he was a kid, he loved it probably too much. And I mean, again, again, there's just this acting that is simultaneously stratospheric and understated. Um, and, and despite all the other action things going on in the plot, we are completely caught up in what the two of them are doing, just as he says that, that you know, the two of them are caught up in what they're doing. Um, and what is he? Who is he? Just a man enjoying the company of a captivating woman. It's, it's charming and it's tender. It's, it's a tissue paper connection between the two of them. And that tenuousness is made possible by how fisk is is acting and reacting in the scene and and just as there's this you know um there's this almost successful completion of the meal then in walks in walks the russian and uh things things turn poorly you know matt you sum it up perfectly we're so disarmed here and then anatoly the more amenable of our two Russian brothers comes in and wants to tell him that we gratefully accept this deal you're offering. Okay. And, uh, Fisk, uh, forebodingly tells Wesley to put him in a car. Pete, what was remarkable in the presentation of Anatoly walking in and the, 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 the complete meltdown that occurs, or at least, meltdown for for fisk is that we at no point knew that there was anyone else connected to fisk in that restaurant um but suddenly wesley is there and he's kind of in the you know the the entryway so okay maybe he's been in another room or whatever that might be but in a series of 
close-ups and long shots intercut the 10 men guarding fisk that have been in plain sight you know undercover pretending to have dinner themselves that sort of thing they just appear from various tables and it's wonderful editing we don't see them getting up and moving into place they just kind of melt into position and there's this implication of men getting up and men starting to form a protective shell around fisk and we don't see the whole thing because if we did it would probably kind of be hackneyed because it would be you know three two one move and it would just look silly but instead it just kind of it happens when we're not looking and it's it's really just a remarkable scene again i think more for the editing than anything else because on the day they surely must have had the assistant director saying three two one okay get up and get into place and you know talking them through it and then they they edit away the the silliness of it to just make it this kind of veil of men suddenly appearing. It's just a fantastic scene. Back at the office of Nelson and Murdoch, Karen breaks the news to Foggy about the equipment and he just smiles and goes to the butcher story, which is just great character work uh, on his behalf. Um, Mike is meanwhile working on Claire in the uh, nice bit of reversal that's going on there. Uh, she remarks that he does good work for a blind guy and he goes into his backstory about his dad being a boxer and, you know, taking a lot of beatings and that he had to, uh, help him out there. Um, but he's sorry and she knows where she stands. It was her choice to go into the dumpster, but he knows that's because, she's a good person and that uh almost resulted in her death because of mike she wants to know is there a plan is there an end game and just like fisk wanting to make his city a better place again we hear from uh murdoch he wants to do that um but nothing's changing and um She's the one here that points out the change. Tell that to the boy you saved from the Russians. Feel my heart. Okay. What does it tell you? That I'm scared more than ever. You it, do this for all of us, Mike. And it's here, Matt, that he tells the name Matthew. My name is Matthew. Certainly, certainly a heartfelt ending to to the scene. And and one of you know, uh, frankly, a raw admission to we, the audience. I think things have moved so quickly that we haven't stopped to realize truly that he doesn't have enough information for an end game. He doesn't know that he needs to get to the top of that building to get that bad guy. Um, and that he's just tugging on one, one string at a time and seeing where it all leads. Um, but that, Indeed, he can trust her. And when he feels her heart, no fancy CGI display here, a la the film. Um, it's just achieved through acting and dialogue and, and, and that, that, more, uh, that more high road way to, to take things. And uh, with that, with the, the, the bond made a bit closer and him revealing his true name to her, back we go to Fisk. Right, Vanessa. Uh and uh, Wilson heading home here and uh, Fisk wants to know if he can see her again. And she's really put off by what happened. She doesn't normally date customers and uh, you know, 
she's not interested in money or what happened at the restaurant. And she's not sure this is a good thing now. Um, and a forlorn uh, Fisk tells her, you know, like I said, I don't do this much. I'm sorry tonight went sideways. You tell me to go away and I will. But uh, she just doesn't know how to feel at this point. And uh, he's left there alone on the sidewalk, his face contorted with sadness and rejection. And I love the, whether it was an acting decision, a directing decision, regardless, the fact that he then turns away from the camera. Uh, not only does it make his pain worse in our imagination, or at least it transfers the pain to our imagination, but I kind of like the notion that it's almost in, in some sort of fanciful way, because of course Fisk, the character, doesn't know that there's a camera there. But I just like that on some level, he doesn't want us to see his pain. His pain is so great that we, the the the, the barely there objective audience, can't even see it. It's it's that great, and and that too just makes it all the more weighty. We're back in the car with Wesley, who is talking to Anatoly. And all of that and no name, but it was right of you to call here. It's better that we speak in person. And Wesley talks about putting the past behind them. Um, and he talks about the, uh, the smoke of change and the past is never erased. A rather wistful, but again, ominous um, monologue here from um, – Toby Leonard Moore. His phone rings, and when Wesley answers with a sir, we know who it is. Passenger side, okay. Hey, that's the it, side Anatolia's on. That is. And, uh, you know, oh, he'd like to have a word with you. And then, Matt, this is a TV 18 beating. Um, though Anatoly manages to produce a knife and uh, slash at uh, Fisk's suit, um, that we can see some mesh, some kind of uh, protection underneath. Um, the subject here is the embarrassment that he has created for Fisk, and he gets him to the uh, bottom of the car door. And he is off to the races. Slam. Slam. Matt, I counted. 22 individual slams before a bucket of blood lets loose at the bottom there. Yeah, I mean, the, the beating that Anatoly gets, it's, it's savage and vicious and very one-sided. And... Look, I, I, I think, you know, you, you turn off your suspension of disbelief for a moment. Oh, Fisk is the bad guy. You shouldn't be that surprised. But we are surprised because this is not the character within the story, as we've suspended disbelief, that, that we have come to really appreciate and admire and sympathize with. And it's just it's just stunning. And then uh, with that, we see Kingpin regarding his blood sprayed face in the reflection of the window. And it he's seeing himself. And it's as though we are seeing him for the first time. Right. And the, the cultured Wesley, of course, quick to produce a handkerchief. Um, Fisk tells him to tell Mr. Potter we're going to, going to need a new suit. 
and Wesley's worried about the reaction here. This is going to start a war, and Fisk tells him, I'm counting on it. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him, a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Well, Pete, it's it certainly is a uh, return of some familiar faces here. Vladimir and Anatoly going uh, all the way from uh, one of your favorite meals, ribs for dinner. Uh, <laughs> although I don't know that you've ever had it in uh, Moscova. Uh, no. But all the way from that hell to Hell's Kitchen. And... Um, <laughs> Certainly, a, a, a bit of a story arc, at least for at least for Anatoly. I think we could say, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, I don't know, goodbye in Russian, but we certainly could say uh, arrivederci to him. Dasvidaniya. Dasvidaniya, indeed. There we go. And between um, Alexei and Sergey and Semyon and all these other thugs that are around, you know, it's not just these brothers. They're the face of this Russian organization, you know, kitchen cab turned Vela's taxi and everything there. Um, but they're clearly falling out of favor, and one of them is dead by the end of this episode. We'll have to see how the remaining brother here, regarded as the more violent one, Vladimir, will react. Pete, I think also showing up on the list is these uh, mysterious non-bidders at the auction, um, certainly foretelling uh, possibly a notion that it's not just uh, Fisk as some sort of kingpin at the top of this efficient uh, confederation of baddies, that maybe there are other players out there either working under him, in concert with him, perhaps uh, perhaps even in opposition of him, Um but it's a strange inclusion to say, hey, there are these people who aren't the noticeable Nobu, Madame Gao, uh, Leland, uh, and so forth, you know, and the, and the Russians, that there's more X factors out there. I think certainly, uh, you know, should uh, keep an eye on those, uh, those no goodniks. On the heels of an episode in which he really shined and came forward as a character. Uh, we finally get a name for our glasses uh, having suit wearing uh, consigliere Wesley. And uh, while not as big an episode as the previous episode, um, still gets some great moments here. Uh, the, the scene at the end with the handkerchief and, you know, really handing off the assist to, uh, to Fisk with the door. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, th that he stays in the car, watches it nonetheless, but there is a certain reserved um, <laughs> greenness to his face as, as, as it's occurring. But he is also to, able to get out once the deed, which is not his deed to do, but once that deed is done, he's able to, you know, take a deep breath, reset and prepare for the next step and the next step and the next step uh, certainly speaks to uh, speaks to that role that Wesley plays. And finally, Fisk, with each episode, we gain more exposure to him. <clears throat> Vincent D'Onofrio just shines and uh, gives us every reason to want to consume more of this series dropped all at once. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench?
time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. Well, Pete, I, I had suggested in the last segment that uh, that the uh, the non-bidders, as I suppose we could call them, may be, uh, may be a place for the story to go. Um, I, I think that that really would be it would be a really interesting place to take it because Fisk is this mountain of a man in the story and physically and whatnot. Um, he's been brought down here a bit in, in his own emotions and his interactions with Vanessa, but to think that he might have uh, equals out there that he's, that he's in contention with, uh, I think it's a really uh, fun place that the story could go to. Definitely. Um, I was really enamored with the Russian storyline in this episode. And as far as theorizing, you know, I want to know more here. Why were they in prison in Siberia? We know without having to see the the breakout, um, you know, what led to their ability to do that. But the brutality that these two brothers have survivors of that situation unable to one of them survive this episode by its end really tells you the brutal nature of where they are now compared to where they were before well pete here's one that i don't think you're going to want to hear so if you want to if you want to cover your ears for a second you can but uh let's go back for a moment to that scene that ben and karen had in the square diner um where he's laying out all the threats. Here's another way to read that. Ben gets his story. Guy ends up in the river. Ben gets his story. Uh, the the story involving was the, the teacher's union. Um, ben gets the story. Teacher, you know, drummed out of town on suspicion of, of vile acts. Um, are we setting up possibly, you know, him saying, sure, Karen, I'll work with you. I'll work with you. At the end of the day, though, I'm a newspaper man. So, you know, could could there be gloom and doom in her future? Uh, again, I, I hesitate to suggest that a member of the fourth estate could do such a thing. But I think sometimes in Hell's Kitchen, anything goes. Well, speaking as a former full time member of the fourth estate, uh, you know, listen, you, you chase stories that that scene culminates with his uh, mention of that uh, woman and her marrying below her station in life. And we know that it's him um, tells you that it's for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. Although it's kind of unethical to get involved with someone that you began a uh, reportorial relationship with. Ah, so maybe that is the maybe that's the ethical bend through which you know further malfeasance can come. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say, and the number one place to get in touch with us is to go on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. Um, we're cycling through the first several we had through our uh, preview episodes prior to the series beginning. And the next one here was left 
for us by longtime listener of the podcast and uh, previous uh, giveaway drawing winner, Aztec Will. It is headlined another fantastic with a PH podcast, five stars, and it reads great team with tremendous insight. Uh, Daredevil preview went deep into casting and impact to the MCU. Can't wait to binge and listen to the superb commentary from Matt and Pete. Thanks, Will. Wow. Very, very uh, effusive praise there. Thank you indeed. Pete, I will mention uh, on Twitter uh, somebody who said they left a left a review. Uh, oftentimes, it takes a couple days for, I guess, iTunes to make sure you didn't say naughty bits or things you shouldn't. Um, but uh, they followed uh, followed up, letting us know that uh, they left a review with uh, a tweet saying as follows. And this comes from Shmahu, which is uh, spelled how it sounds. Shmahu on uh, on uh, Twitter said uh, I've watched two episodes of Daredevil and must watch episode 1 then your podcast then next episode then your podcast required listening so thank you so much Shmahu we understand that in a perfect world you know we'd be able to be getting these out all on the first day just not possible with you know the need for things like food and water and uh, the rest of our lives happening uh, and whatnot but um, we're glad that you're watching with us and we're glad that you are listening and enjoying. Shmahu, Yahoo. Well, that Pete, speaking of the Twitter, Shmahu might have tweeted that at Fantastic Geek, but there is a, there's a special honor reserved for the best of the best. And those are the people who follow you on Twitter. How can they do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J. Ketelar, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 5,622 followers, can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast on our Gmail, our .com, and our Twitter. All of those are Fantastic Geek, that is fantastic with a PH, and Pete, there's one more way. Yes, our Facebook, I don't know if it's a Daredevil thing or what, has blown up since we started podcasting these episodes proper so get yourself on over to facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek all one word with the ph like us everything that we uh, do on there will then show up on your feed and it's been a great source of uh, sharing uh, information and uh, getting uh, some feedback there in an informal way from uh, our great listening fans. And by the way, Pete, now that we've been able to to take a moment, take a breath after the uh, the marathon weekend of cranking out those first three episodes in, uh, for us, what was about 36 hours. I know they came out about over 72 hours or so, but it's been really, really nice seeing that uh, even people who aren't reaching out on the various ways, that people have been finding the podcast, enjoying the podcast, going from one episode to the next. Uh, really, really is uh, you know means a lot to us that, that people are out there listening and enjoying. Um, there's been some people who have gone from Daredevil to discover our Agents of Shield podcast or our pop culture podcast, and uh, just want to take a moment uh, as the weekend is about to begin with uh, with a little thank you uh, to one and all. Absolutely. 
So uh, with that, uh, I guess I will say to all our listeners, Das Vidanya and Pete, I'm, uh, I'm ready to, to ride on home. Put him in a car. <laughs> <laughs>